Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Our first guest tonight is the author of a fantastic new book that looks at all aspects of sports arenas, except what happens on the field. Rafi Kohan is a freelance writer and editor. He served as deputy editor of the New York Observer. He's written for GQ, Men's Journal, The Wall Street Journal, Town & Country, Rolling Stone. He describes himself as a Yankee fan who misses the old Yankee Stadium, which we'll ask him about a little bit later. He's the author of the new book, The Arena, Inside the Tailgating, Ticket Scalping, Mess. Uh, mascotting, dubiously funded, and possibly haunted monuments of American sport. Please give a big Sports Talk New York welcome to Rafi Cohen. Rafi, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about you. You worked as deputy editor of the New York Observer. What was it like working with Jared Kushner? Does that give you any (laughs) insight into what's going on in Washington? I wish it did. Uh, You know, I I was there at the same time that uh, Jared was the publisher. I was... uh, you know, editor there during 2013, 2014. Um, but, you know, I really focused more on the columns that, uh, that I was tasked to edit and some of the, the profiles uh, that I took on uh, for, you know, to write myself. Uh, I ended up, you know, writing some profiles of, uh, timely as it may be, Carmelo Anthony, actually, right when he said he was going to be uh, testing free agency and then some other, you know, New York. Uh, We're going to talk New a little York. later about a piece you did on Carmelo that I dug up, written uh, red earlier oh, yeah. today. But so, so, so that was more of my focus, and I, I honestly I didn't have much interaction with Jared. Uh, he didn't really interact with us in the bullpen so much. Didn't uh, you know? Didn't want to uh, I don't know. I guess uh, mix with the unwashed masses. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so I, I I don't know. I, I don't have a, I don't have much insight on Jared. But um, yeah, and uh, you know they say if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. So I'll okay. leave it at that. Okay. So let's talk a little <laughs> about the arena. There have been a lot of books written about stadiums and arenas, and you quote a number of them in your book. What made you decide to write the arena, and what did you hope to add to the discussion and the dialogue? Well, yeah, I, I mean there have there have been plenty of books written uh, from a variety of different angles, whether it was talking about historically or you know about the fan experience or about fan behavior or, you know, architecturally, um, a lot of sociological books. I leaned really heavily on a lot of sort of sports sociology uh, um, literature, uh, which I found fascinating for a variety of different reasons that I think it, it sort of added to the, you know, to the discussion for all the different angles that I took. But I didn't think that there was much in terms of, you know, the characters and the logistics and kind of the behind-the-scenes inner workings and machinations uh, that happened on the day of the game. And so that was really what I wanted to focus on. Um, sort of in each chapter of the book, uh, I, 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 wanted, I wanted to dissect a uh, different element or angle of the stadium experience, you know, whether it was new or old and kind of how, uh, you know, how you sort of um, incorporate history into the modern world when it comes to stadiums and how that affects the fan experience. Uh, two mascots and fan entertainment and the ticket scalpers and the groundskeepers really embedding within those worlds and kind of understanding, you know, who are those people who kind of add to our game day experience? Because I really, you know, I always felt like I paid attention or noticed those guys, um, you know, when I went to a stadium and went to a game, but I didn't really know anything about them. And I really love that kind of idea of, 
sort of going behind the scenes with the people that you don't really know what they do, but they're always there, and they're all you know they they make such a big difference in terms of how we experience the game. You begin the book by talking about the old stadiums, and you really focus on three. You focus on Fenway Park, on Wrigley Field, and on Lambeau Field. So two baseball, one football. First of all, before you decided to do the book, had you been to any of those three stadiums, and how much did your doing this book and getting behind the scenes change your perspective of the three of them? It's a great question. I actually had only been to one of them. I'd been to Fenway. Um, I went to Fenway as a kid, uh, and I went to Fenway when I lived in Boston for a time after college. But I had not. I had been to neither of Wrigley Field or Lambeau, and. It was interesting because it did get, uh, totally change my perception of Fenway, um, looking at it through this new lens, which was sort of understanding how they, as I said earlier, sort of negotiated history and modernity and sort of dragged Fenway Park into the 21st century, you know, this 100-year-old ballpark. Uh, because every other time I'd gone there, you know, I'd gone there as a Yankee fan. <laughs> and, of course, you know, I was a little wary That's about brave who I was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who I was interacting with, you know, um, all that. Actually, one time I went there uh, as a, uh, when I went there when I lived in Boston, they were playing the, the Rockies. And I just, I, I bought a Rockies hat. And I, went there <laughs> and I figured, I just figured. Anyone but the gonna, Red Sox. Who's going to get in a fight with a Rockies fan? You know, it's so harmless. And it was true. Nobody gave me, I, I was vociferous in my support of the Rockies. And everyone just treated me like, you know, I was a, a cute spectacle. Um, but I really have a, a, just a true new appreciation for Fenway. It is the place that I think is kind of the most magical in terms of preserving that old uh, experience, the one that kind of is, tethers us from the present to the, to the past. Uh, Wrigley and Fenway, I mean, Wrigley and Lambeau are great for, uh, you know, for other reasons. Uh, I think that Wrigley has sort of struggled a little bit in terms of making that same transition with their recent renovations. They don't get the details exactly right in the way that I think Fenway really did a smart job. Um, and Lambeau is really just so much about the fans themselves. You know, they, I mean, the you know they're they're obviously they're the team owners. You know, it's the only community-owned uh, professional sports league in uh, in the United States. And you can feel that kind of emotional investment and emotional ownership when you go to the game. There's just so much passion that it just it takes it up a notch. Uh, so it, it was, uh, it was every, at every place I went, I sort of learned something that I wasn't expecting to. But the fact that I had such a deeper pre- appreciation for Fenway really sort of took me back, especially as a Yankee fan. One of the scenes you describe in the book when you're at Wrigley uh, is how you actually went onto the field with one of the groundskeepers who taught you how to cut ivy. Is that how you yeah. became an, an amateur ivy trimmer in your bio? <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, that's why I threw that in the bio. Um, yeah, I, I, am, I am now officially an amateur ivy, ivy groomer. It was a, a very short lesson, but I did get to snip, you know, a piece of the famous ivy, and I, I was able to take it with me, which was pretty cool. I even got a, a baseball out of the ivy. I was just about to know, ask. I was just yeah, about to ask. <laughs> it's too funny. As you know, there are so many balls that just get caught and lost in the, in the ivy. You know, back in the about in the late 2000s, Jim Edmonds actually banged into the wall and two balls uh, came out. Um, I'm actually I got that ball sitting right in front of me on my desk right here. It's a, that was probably the coolest. That and the ivy itself were probably the two coolest mementos for my trip. Now the next chapter goes in the other direction, and it talks about new stadiums. And again, you focus on two. One of which is here in New York, which is the Barclays Center, and the other is the AT&T Stadium in the Dallas Cowboys. 
two different things. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the politics, and you got into this, how AT&T Stadium and Jerry Jones got that built. Uh, again, this is fascinating to me, especially since I work in government, uh, to take a look and see, you know, the back and forth and how the, the mayor of Arlington, who was a doctor who ended up becoming a mayor when he got hurt, uh, ends up, you know, cutting the deal to let the stadium there and basically edging out Dallas. So you have a long discussion of whether this is a good thing or a bad thing for a community to invest so much money in a stadium. So talk a little bit about what happened in Arlington and whether you think you know, that worked out for them. Well, I think, uh, you know, for Arlington, I mean, it is such a fascinating story. That was one of the things uh, that I just thought was, you know, when you talk about sort of serendipitous moments, uh, that it, I, I don't think that it actually had been reported anywhere, the fact that this stadium in Arlington, this icon, this new global and entertainment sports icon, can basically trace its roots back to a motorcycle accident because that's what, uh, you know, sparked uh, or, or led to uh, Robert Cluck uh, leaving his, uh, his practice as an OBGYN and becoming a politician. And he's the man uh, that absolutely cut the deal uh, between the city of Arlington and, uh, and the Cowboys. I mean, it wasn't so simple. I mean, he, he made the deal. There was, a, there was a handshake agreement. But then, there, of course, there was a political campaign that had to follow it. Uh, there was a vote uh, on, uh, you know, on whether they should, uh, whether they should uh, publicly fund a portion of the stadium, uh, which doesn't happen in every community. Oftentimes, you know, it's, sort of, it's done via the city council, and the public doesn't get to weigh in. So in that sense, at least, at least the public did have a voice. But of course, you know these types of campaigns are you know heavily financed uh, from the stadium side. So it's you know being a government man, you know there's a you can under, you can appreciate that it's yeah. a lot of special interest. And it's a lot of special yes. interest money pouring in, but not necessarily you know the cleanest campaigns. Um, <laughs> but they, it the uh, the vote passed, and you know 325 million dollars, uh, thanks uh, mostly due to a half cent sales tax um, in Arlington, helped fund the stadium. I mean, it's the larger question as to whether these, these stadiums, these investments are smart for communities, I mean, there's a couple different ways to dissect that. I mean, I spent a lot of time talking to economists, sports economists, and just other folks who, you know, sort of become expert in this area. And all the evidence suggests that stadiums are not good economic drivers. In fact, there is way more evidence to, to, to suggest that uh, that there's oftentimes when they're net they have net negative effects on communities, uh, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, you know, we hear these big you know rosy numbers going into these campaigns. Oh, it'll create this much economic activity, uh, but oftentimes you know those are economic consultants that are paid for either by the by the city government, which you know wants to uh, you know wants to build the stadium, uh, or for the teams themselves, who obviously have a vested interest, and all, you know, you can you can do a lot of funny math with uh, multiplier effects and, and making assumptions, uh, but they don't necessarily look at the regions macroscopically. It might you know increase economic activity in a certain area on certain days of the week or certain times of the year, but uh, there really is not evidence to suggest that community wide that there are net economic benefits, um, and really it comes down to. You know, the fact that it's a form of corporate welfare uh, at the end of the day. That doesn't mean that we're going to stop doing it uh, as communities. In fact, we're, 
as as we've seen in Las Vegas uh, with a $750 million going toward the Raiders, Oof. that, in fact, these subsidies are only getting larger, it seems. Um, and what, I'm ho- what I really hope that what happens in communities is that there's just more honest conversations in terms of what these stadiums can mean to the communities. Because they do, re- they do represent, uh, you know, they do have value proposition. You know, there's such things as civic pride and quality of life. And if that's something that you and your community want to invest in, I don't know if that's worth, you know, three-quarters of a billion dollars necessarily, but in the same way that you would spend money on an arts district or a golf course because it's something that's important to your community, then by all means have that conversation and, and take a vote on it and see if that's where you want to spend your money. The thing that really bums me out is when communities are sort of sold a bill of goods that the stadium is going to mean one thing uh, for them because they believe these economic forecasts, and then they sort of stake uh, they stake sort of the, the the viability of their city, you know, their of their general funds on you know some sort of uh, you know expected uh, tax returns or revenues, which oftentimes don't you know aren't realized. In Cincinnati, you know, they've had to close hospitals as a result of uh, depleting the general fund because the you know the the stadiums have not lived up wow. to the you know to the economic prom- promise. You talk economic. So, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's just and it's just a you know it's a real it's a real bummer because I think cities you know are maybe maybe they're getting smarter and maybe not, but when they but when they're told something that's just you know blatantly not true. It just it, it can really hurt the communities in the end. You know, you talk in the book about the Barclays Center and the construction. Actually, you, you mentioned somebody, Norman Oder. Ten years ago, I worked for the state's economic development agency. I got to know Norman Oder reasonably well. He's a very good journalist and talked a lot about what was and wasn't going to happen economically You know, in the community, the Atlantic Yards area where the Barclays Center is. But one of the things you have in the book that, that I didn't know, and maybe you can talk a little bit for our, our listeners about this, was the change in architects and really what happened and how actually the Barclays Center was supposed to be a different arena, and they, they brought in steel from somewhere else and had to really scurry around with different plans. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. Is You know, originally it was supposed to be uh, Frank Gehry. I mean, that was how the, the whole project was sold. It wasn't just an arena. It was a whole development, you know, with housing and, and, um, and commercial space and, and office, uh, office buildings. And, you know, the arena was going to be the centerpiece of this Frank Gehry uh, development. And, of course, Frank Gehry is, you know, a, a celebrity architect. You know, his buildings draw people uh, to, you know, to come and gawk at them. Uh, but when, you know, with the economic, uh, with an economic recession in the, you know, in the 2000s, they, there was no longer possible for them to fund uh, all of the, you know, all of the Gehry development at once. And it, the way it was designed was that it had to all be built at once. The buildings were sort of, you know, part of the arena, like abutting a the arena. It wouldn't work without them. You couldn't build them piecemeal. And so what happened was they just they said, all right, you know, forget it. We're, we're going to ditch this Gary, and we're just going to find an arena. And basically uh, the, the Nets and, and Ratner, uh, Bruce Ratner, um, Toward some arenas and decided on the Conseco Fieldhouse, which is where the Indiana Pacers play, and said, "All right, we'll just do that one." So basically, you know, the complaint at the time, you know, from um, a variety of folks, including the New York Times architecture critic, who called this a, a, a stunning bait and switch, is that basically this uh, this spectacular arena and development that the borough and the city were promised 
was being swapped out for a sort of generic run-of-the-mill NBA arena that basically could live anywhere. Uh, and they bought the steel for this because, you know, in, in large part because they wanted to get some tax credits that were about to sunset if they didn't start building before the end of the year in what was, I think, 2009. Uh, and when they got the blowback, you know, after this, as, you know, from folks like the Times Critic and others, they realized they had to do something to kind of make it a little bit more bespoke, a little bit more exciting, and they ended up uh, um, bringing in uh, shop architects who did the best they could to sort of, uh, you know, recreate um, an, an original design or create an original design within the limitations of the Conseco Fieldhouse because, again, they had already had bought steel. the steel. So anybody wow. who's listened to this show for even part of its 10 years knows my penchant for talking about mascots and the antics that help advance the game attending experience. So after reading the first few chapters, I jumped to the one that features mascots, and I came across the comment by Don Constanti of the Kansas City Royals about being careful not to present attractions that are distractions, such as things that would glue people to their smartphones. And the quote was, we're not driving technology in terms, of ch in terms of check out the replays on your phone and distract you. It would be hypocritical. We're talking about balls that could kill you. So in light of what happened at Yankee Stadium this week, with the foul ball hitting the little girl, how do you feel about the move they had netting to protect lower deck fans? Is something that's going to happen, or do you think traditional owners will still resist it? I think, I mean, personally, I think it's a no-brainer to Adam. I don't, it's, uh, you know, I was in Boston when I was visiting Fenway Park. You may remember this as well. It was in June 2009, and I was actually invited to sit in the owner's box of Larry Lucchino, uh, you know, which is right next to the uh, third base dugout, you know, the visitor's dugout. Uh, and I, the game I went to, it happened to be the day after a woman in the stands was hit, I believe, some, you know, in the, the head or the neck by a helicoptering bat. Uh, and she was in serious, you know, critical condition, was taken to the hospital. At the time I was there, um, you know, it still wasn't known whether, you know, whether she would survive. Uh, I actually ended, I, I asked the security guard uh, who was on the field, the field guard, you know, had he ever seen anything like that? Because it's just, I mean, in 2015 in particular, there was also um, an increase in these incidents. So it was something I was tracking. Uh, and he said, I asked him if he'd ever seen anything like this. And he said, yes. You know, in my other job, and I said, "What's your other job?" And he said, "I work in an emergency room." So the fact that we're gonna we're having emergency room like you know incidents on an on an increasing basis uh, in baseball parks in the, for fans is is inexcusable. I think uh, it's a no brainer to put in netting, and absolutely there there is hesitation because uh, you know we talk about these really expensive seats, these club seats behind home plate. You know, a couple hundred dollars at least to sit there. And, you know, the owners, I'm sure ownerships are, ownership is uh, hearing complaints that they don't want their view blocked, that the netting is, you know, gets in the way, it, it, it ruins the experience. And you know what? I think you put in netting, I think you, you get used to it in about an inning and a half, and then you don't think about it ever again. I think you just have to bite the bullet, you put up the netting, and you, and you, you know, the fans will adjust. I mean, when you sit directly behind home plate, you have netting in front of you. It doesn't ruin the experience. There's still plenty of people that love sitting right behind the catcher, mm -hmm. you know, getting Absolutely. that straight line out to center field. So I, don't, I really don't understand what the holdup is. I, I really don't. So you spent the second half of that chapter following an acrobat who goes by the stage name The Amazing Sladek. What's amazing for this show is that Sladek, whose real name is Borstelman, is a Long Islander. Yeah. So can you tell our listeners about Sladek and what you learned from following him, including taking a ride on the cyclone? 
Well, so Sladek is just, you know, was one of uh, my favorite people that I met along the way. He's someone who's actually, you know, uh, become a friend. He actually performed uh, at my book launch party. He, uh, we had a halftime show, and he did, he did some handstands. Uh, but it, that was a real educational experience for me because I just never really spent that much time thinking about halftime shows or, you know, what goes in it, what, you know, what goes behind it, where, what kind of backstory is there. Uh, I only came across Sladek uh, when I was in Cleveland, which is where I spent some time with ticket scalpers. And one of the guys that I was spending time with had some extra tickets, and he said, why don't you just go into this game, you know, uh, have a good time. I'm stuck with these tickets here. I'll be out here a while. And it was the first game of the 2015 playoffs, which was LeBron's uh, first season back in Cleveland. And the Cavs had hired the amazing Sladek to perform at, uh, at halftime. And... I get in there right before halftime. I get to my seat, and everyone's, you know, getting ready to get up. And then Sladek comes on on the stage. And what he does is he performs uh, what's called the Tower of Chairs. He stacks six chairs on top of one another. He climbs his way to the top and does handstands. Uh, it's about 25 feet in the air. This guy's almost about 60 years old. You know, it is, it is impressive to see. And when you're used to seeing everyone get up from their seats to go get another beer or go to the bathroom, Nobody will ask. Everyone watched Sladek, myself included, just transfixed by this guy. Just the showmanship, you know, unbelievable. So I said, I need to find out who this guy is. Uh, reached out, and I just spent some time with him. And it's, his backstory is, is, is really one of a kind. He spent 30 years, more than 30 years, in the circuit, you know, l- learning this craft, becoming a great acrobat before he ever performed in an NBA arena. Uh, there's more to the backstory than that, but I don't want to give too much away. But he is just, I mean, just the, the idea that, you know, the circus is somehow a feeder system for our, you know, for our entertainment and sports arenas was just kind of mind-blowing. And you got, yeah, to, be an about it. One, you got to be as an assistant one game and hand it was, chairs. It was the scariest thing I've ever done, uh, being <laughs> his assistant. You know, when you're watching from the stands, it seems so easy. It's, everything seems so perfect and smooth. But, you know, I'm handed, so I'm handing him his chairs. And they're heavier than they look. And then I'm lifting the chair up, and you, know, you, you have to lift it up on top of a, a metal pole, this contraption that he put together. And you've got to hand it to him when he's about 15 feet in the air and then 20 feet in the air so he can get the last couple. And I was just terrified that I was about to plunge this pole directly into his chairs. And, you know, he spent 35 years, 30 years getting to the uh, NBA, you know, performing at basketball games across, uh, you know, across the country, and I get to see the headline, like, Local idiot kills halftime performer. You know, I was just, I was so scared. I think he was scared too, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't admit it. So you spent some time at City Field looking at the concessions, but Yankee Stadium is one of the arenas you don't focus on in the book. You're a Yankee fan. Why didn't you spend time at Yankee Stadium? Um, well, one main reason is that they're really hard to deal with in terms of their PR department. <laughs> um, but also, you know, I was going to spend a little bit of time there just in terms of the bleacher creatures. Um, and maybe include that for um, for my chapter about fans and fan behavior. But the truth is, is that as I started to build that chapter out, you know, I realized I was going to have to make some cuts anyway, and it didn't. And it, I didn't necessarily have room for it. And it, I would rather I spent so much time in local uh, arenas and stadiums, from Barclays Center to Prudential to City Field to MetLife, that I, I didn't want it to become too overkill and New York centric. So I was happy to you know. Um, you know, spend more time, you know, in places like Oakland 
you know, hang out with the Oakland Raiders fans, just because I think that I thought that would give a different flavor, you know, to the book overall and give it a little bit more diversity, you know, geographical, geographically. Um, but you know, and the truth is, is that uh, you know, Yankee Stadium is not uh, is not necessarily uh, the you know one of my favorite stadiums to go to, and I you know I say that even as a Yankee fan. That's surprising. Okay, so we talked a little bit about Barclays, and, and you got me thinking about ne- negatives and community impact. So you had me thinking about the um, the Islanders and their situation with Barclays, and I'm sure AJ remember covering this at uh, Newsday. Um, but w- what do you what do you hear about that? About the the potential um, places they might be moving? The fact that they might not have a stadium here in a couple of years, and they might not be a New York franchise anymore. Have you heard anything about that? Well, I don't know. I don't. I don't have anything definitive, of course. But I think it's pretty much. I mean, I've been to games, uh, seen Islander games at Barclays, and it, I don't know that it, that's a sustainable experience. I mean, yeah, that a, arena mess, was purposely built not not for hockey. No, yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, and you go to a game, and it, it feels that way, and There's that's like, not something you want to feel as a fan. So, Rafi, uh, we can let you go. We're running out of time. The book is The Arena. Inside the tailgating, ticket scalping, mascot racing, dubiously funded, and possibly haunted monuments of American sport. Where can you get the book? Well, you can find it uh, online on, at Amazon or uh, Barnes Noble, and, and and or if you want to go to a local independent bookstore or just a brick and mortar Barnes and Noble, you can find it there too. Okay, uh, again, Rafi Cohen, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much, uh, and uh, you know, like we hope the book does well. It's a great book and a really good read. Really appreciate that, guys. Thank you for having me.